Welcome to Across the Pond, a Christian commentary on the way of Jesus in the world today with the co-founders of Red Letter Christians, Dr. Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. Red Letter Christians gets its name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red, and we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. Some episodes of this podcast have been adapted from our radio show, Across the Pond, which airs on Sunday afternoons in the UK on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne, and we are here at Across the Pond, recording from the United States. And I know some of y'all are listening in the UK, some of you are listening in other parts of the world, but it is an amazing time to be alive. We are in 2022 now. 2021 is gone, and new things are coming in this new year. And I can't imagine a a uh, more beautiful way to kick it off than with my brother Brian Zahn, who I just love. And I, you might have read his books. He's written all kinds of them. He's a pastor. I would say you're a music lover, right, brother? Oh, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> we'll get into that. He's also a great writer. I got his book uh, here. I was just telling him I, I keep it on my top shelf. Uh, it, it's uh, Postcards from Babylon, but he's written Beauty Will Save the World. He's written uh, his newest book, When Everything's on Fire. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Uh he also got one of the best titles, which is Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And in case you all missed that, there's that, uh, you know, real well-known Jonathan Edwards, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So you're winking at that, I think. But it's mm-hmm. good to be with you, buddy. Good to be with you, Shane. It's always, you know, we cross paths now and then. And I always enjoy when our paths cross. <laughs> well, me too. I do. And, you know, I was, one of, I've read a bunch of your books, and I, I know one of them you talk a little bit about the era in which you found the sweet Lord. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's helpful because we, we share, I was, we, you know, I'm living on a solar powered school bus turned into a tiny house and mm-hmm. we got that little uh, simple vibe going. And you, you, you came out of the sort of Jesus, Jesus movement era. And I can still see that in your writing and in your preaching. So talk a little bit about how you fell in love with Jesus and yeah, what was I'm going a, on in the world. I'm man. a real life Jesus freak, just <laughs> all grown up. I mean, but that's what I am. I had this dramatic encounter with Jesus when I was in high school, where overnight, like that, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. (laughs) Although I still like Led Zeppelin, but I became a Jesus freak and everybody in the school knew it. Back then, everybody called me Fry. I mean, everybody, teachers, friends, everybody knew me as Fry. And they said, I mean, after a few weeks went by, people would say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. I would say, I know, right? (laughs) Shocking. Surprise me. (laughs) But it happened. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry. I just sort of fell into it. It just happened. Things like that happened back then. So this would have been like, so so I'm 17. So this has been like, you know, 77, 76. And I was leading the thing. Called I was catacombs. born right around then, just so you know. I, uh, I, know, I know. You're, you're, entered you're, entered the world right you're, there. But you're ahead. but a child. I know this. <laughs> and uh, 
so it was a it was a music venue called the catacombs that we started in the basement of a dive bar on third street and so the catacombs was kind of a double entendre we were subterranean literally but we also had this affinity with you know the early the the first the jesus movement from the 70s not the 1970s the 70s (laughs) and and we had an affinity with that well this is what turned into word of life church i mean so there's just a continuation catacombs we thought well we're basically a church now let's start meeting on sundays and so we ended up buying this derelict building at 11th and sycamore for six thousand dollars and um and we started November 1st, 1981, which means we just celebrated our 40th anniversary. So I, I've been a part of pastoring, leading, serving one congregation, one church for 40 years. And How just, about that? Just, just Come on. And my wife is just getting ready to turn 40. So you've yeah, been so pastoring you know, as that's, long that's, as that's a lifetime for your wife. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but so one of the things that we share in common, I feel like... Uh, We've, we've done, you know, events together. We've had all kinds of conversations and different things we've done. But, you know, we, we talk about red letter Christianity and the idea that Jesus uh, is the lens, right, through which yeah. we're, under, we're, we're interpreting the Bible, the, uh, the lens through which we're trying to understand how to live in this crazy world. Jesus is everything to us. And you, you share that. And I, I would imagine you get some pushback sometimes from folks that say, well, you know, the black letters of the Bible matter too, not just the red letters of the gospel. Uh, and, and it was one of the tensions in the early church was, you know, is Jesus the new and improved God? Is, is Jesus different mm-hmm. from the God that um, can, can be, you know, seen as really doing some things that are hard to understand in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, so say a little bit about how you, how you reconcile that, man, if you can do that in just the next few minutes, that'd be awesome. (laughs) I I can probably solve that in two minutes. Uh, Well, of course, there was a second century heretic by the name of Marcion, who notices, I mean, he is seeing a certain tension, okay, and so he says, I see Jesus, and then I see certain passages of the Old Testament that appeared to him to be, if not in tension, actually in conflict. Well, his solution to the problem was that he denounced the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh of Israel, as some sort of demi-urge, kind of a semi-demonic lower God being and so he wanted to banish the Old Testament and even some of the New Testament. So that was his solution, and that was indeed deemed as a heretical move. Sometimes people will hear how I talk, and they'll want to, you know, see, yeah. you're a Marcionite. I say, I am not. <laughs> First of all, let me say this. I, uh, I, I call the Old Testament scripture. I read it and pray it every single day of my life. I call the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Abba of Jesus Christ. I hold it all together, but I do understand that Marcion did see a problem. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the Bible is a big book. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. It's a big (laughs) book. And it covers a lot of territory over a lot of time. And so we have to find a way to center our reading of this what can be an unwieldy text. And I do this. I say, look, where are we going to center our reading? Well, we're Christians, New Testament. 
where in the New Testament, the Gospels, where we can hear Jesus speak for himself. For me, I can even, I can even take it right to the cross. Christ upon the cross, arms outstretched and offered embracing, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we read every other passage from that vantage point. The Bible is an enormous book. I mean, it's big and it can be unwieldy if we just tried to treat every single verse as having equal revelation of God. And so what we do is we center our reading in Christ. This is what the early church said to do. This is the patristic approach. And so that we interpret all of scripture in the light of Christ, that in fact, all scripture ultimately points us to Christ and Christ is the final interpretation. In other words, Jesus Christ is the true word of God by which we interpret the text that we call the word of God as the Bible. That's in no way a low view of scripture. That's simply a high view of Christ. That's a high Christology that we use for interpreting the scripture. So ultimately, everything finds its final fulfillment and interpretation in Christ. And quite honestly, Shane, I don't think that should be controversial for those. No, man. I mean, you're singing my song. You're saying, yeah. I mean, this is what we're about, right? And I think that's what, what's so sad is that a lot of times we've misused the Bible to trump Jesus, right? Like we've used parts of Paul to say, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really practical or, you know, the Hebrew scripture, which Jesus himself said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Moses told you this, but I tell you this, Jesus said, you look to the scriptures as if they have life, but they point to me. Like, you know, you got the word made flesh, you know, like this is it. So when, when, you know, we look at the state of Christianity, I mean, part of it, is that it feels like we really have uh, lost our eyes, taken our eyes off of Jesus, you know? And that's why Gandhi said, you know, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. Well, look, and th this, this is why Christ must be the interpretive center of the biblical text. Because if we don't do that, look, you can use the Bible to prove anything, right? Yeah. I mean, you tell me what you want to prove, what position you want to hold, what politics, social policy. Give me five minutes and I'll give you your verses where you can prove that you're right. But that is not faithful to the revelation of God that's given us in Christ. I don't know if people can see this. I mean, this is, we're, we're on Zoom, but, but this is one of the most clever ways that we can hide from Jesus. Well, don't bother me, Jesus. I'm reading the Bible here. I mean, I literally had it happen. This is this is this is a true story where I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and I was talking about how Christ calls us to a life of nonviolence. And when I was done, a man came up to me, an intelligent man, a man that should know better, but in all sincerity came up to me and said, Yeah. But the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I had to show him. I said, yeah, but Jesus countermands that and calls us to something higher. And in yeah. fact, if you, if you, that's the point. You see a progression in Scripture. The eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a mitigation of unrestrained retaliation. Yes. So you, you remember you remember following Cain. Cain is preserved with a mark so that he can't be vengeance can't be taken on him and then you get i think it's like five or six generations later you get to this fellow named lamech and lamech man he's he's a he's a piece of work lamech says uh i have killed a man for wounding me 
I have slain a man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is seven, my vengeance is 70 times seven. That's the first 70 times seven in the Bible. And so Lamech is setting us on a course of exponential violent retaliation that in, that, that, that story then ends in the flood. This is the yeah. great sin that caused the world to need such a big bath was, was you know, ever escalating violence. Uh, so then in the law of Moses, we're, we're pulling back from uh, ever escalating retaliatory violence to at least reciprocal violence, you know, eye yep. for eye. But as you continue on the journey of Revelation, you get to Jesus, where Jesus reimagines the 70 times 7 of Lamech into 70 times 7, not retaliation, but 70 times 7 forgiveness and calls us to turn the other cheek. And that's why Jesus dares. I mean, who can say? Who, who, who has the authority to say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, the only one that has the authority to do that is the one who, in fact, is the true word of God, Jesus, Glory! incarnate logos made flesh. Y'all just thought you were listening to the radio or a podcast, but we haven't jumped up <laughs> and uh, Hey, listen, everybody, y'all that uh, might have just joined us. We're My name's Shane Claiborne, and, and the show's Across the Pond. Uh, the guest today that you've been listening to is Brian Zahn, just great brother, written all kinds of good books. We're talking about Jesus. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that we, we, we lose track of, I think, is... Um, why Jesus died. I mean, this is one of the biggest mysteries of our faith, right? It's, it's um, as many have said, it, it's not just a, uh, like a little thing that we're going to put, if we can put language to it, we're probably falling short of the transcendent nature of God. But, but yet there are some versions of why Jesus died that sort of have God pointing a gun at humanity and taking it off of us and pointing it on Jesus and killing Jesus and it can end up with a pretty violent understanding of atonement. And I, I would love, since you're just we're ripping through all the uh, theology today, man, just help folks that, uh, you know, what are some of the ways that you've come to understand why Jesus died and, and the, the, um, what Jesus did on the cross? You know, I'm sitting here, at, I'm actually at my writing desk, which doubles these days as my Zooming desk. And the book I'm writing currently is entitled the wood between the worlds and it's mm. a book on the cross and it looks like it's going to have 20 chapters and the point is that there are at least 20 different ways of talking about and understanding what is revealed at the cross that are all true mm -hmm. one of the problems with let's just you know it's the elephant in the room one of the problems with penal substitutionary atonement theory is that even, even if it were accurate, and I think it is a, as N.T. Wright says, a paganized soteriology, but even if it were accurate, one of the problems with it is that it seems to eclipse all other meanings of the cross. And so that we say, no, God poured out his wrath on his son so that he could forgive us. We're all done with it. No, the cross is the ongoing revelation of who God is. So I would say it like this. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. 
How about that? Now I had that right here, man. I was going to read that. Okay. Well, on I mean, the cross I, I is paradoxical. Right, see, I know that stuff. <laughs> but, but go ahead. Christ on the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. The violence of the cross is not what God does. The violence of the cross is what God endures. But we heard it from the man himself right there. That's that's uh, from, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, here's the point. We can't we can't use Good Friday as a moment to create a rupture in the Trinity. Yeah. I mean, throughout the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, but they're all there. Uh, Jesus continually says things like, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say yep. what the Father says. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when Jesus prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Son is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. That would be very poor theology. Uh, rather, the Son is reflecting who the Father is. So we could be playful with it, and we could say, we could imagine the response. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, and the Father says, of course, Son. That's mm -hmm. who we are. That, yes. That's who we are. And so uh, the cross is not where God gains the capacity to forgive. The cross is where God is revealed. Or let me say it this way. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. The cross is where Jesus reveals God as Savior. Woo! There is saving yep. going on. There is, there's all kinds of things that are going on there. Yeah. But we're not being saved from God. We're being saved from sin and death and a world formed as around an axis of power enforced by violence. We're being saved from all kinds of things, but we're not being saved from God. Mm. We're being saved by God through Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reconciling himself to the world. Those are two very different things. Uh, you know what would be a good title of a book? Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. How about that? Uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's I mean, let me write that titles, down. But, uh, yeah, write that down. Hey, so, um, you know, here we are. We're recording this. Uh, it'll air at different times, but we're recording this on the anniversary of the insurrection, January 6th. And you and I and hundreds, I think it's thousands now of other folks responded by making a statement denouncing yeah. Christian nationalism. Um, and we, we, we named it, right, as a heresy. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it seems that, uh, that it wasn't just about what happened on January 6th, but the theology and the conditions that led up to January 6th. And we were real clear about that. By the way, if you haven't seen that statement, you can go to, uh, among other places, you can go to Red Letter Christians, but you can go to Say No to Christian Nationalism and see a whole bunch of resources there. But one of the things that you've said, Brian, is that one of the biggest uh, obstacles to authentic Christianity is American nationalism that's kind of camouflaging itself as Christianity. Yeah. And you've got a part of your, your your book here that's called Tangled Up in the Red, White, and Blue. <laughs> and Lord, we are. But, uh, you know, say, won't you say a little bit about um, where where this is headed and, you know, and, and how we got here? You know, this has been an ongoing problem for the church for the past 17 centuries. In its current American iteration, it has its own uniqueness in that now it's America's turn, but this is not a new sin for the church. Essentially, essentially, I mean, to distill it as simply as I can, in the wilderness temptation, Jesus is offered what we might think of as political control 
over the nations. That is through probably, probably the idea is through Jesus using his capacity to wage war and to be violent upon the bad guys, he could attain all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But Jesus sees that to, to obtain that, you have to bow down to the devil and Jesus won't do it. Well, the church faces that same temptation generally when it's hosted by an empire, or let's say, let's use this thing, a superpower that is not actively hostile toward the church. And the church gets the idea, oh, if we could just get the superpower that has this, the capacity to wield Caesar's sword to be on our side, then we could really, you know, bring about the kingdom of God and righteousness on earth. And we fail to see what Jesus saw, and that is bowing down and worshiping the devil. Mm. Maybe mm. another way of talking about it is the ring of power. You know? Yeah, maybe. Okay. That, I mean, I mean, idea it is that we're gaining, seductive. Gaining and, the whole world and losing our soul. Yeah. yeah. And so, so in one sense, this, you know, uh, you know, this, this happened with the Byzantine Empire and the Roman Empire after Constantine and, and we, you know, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, Germany had a very bad experience with this in the previous century. And so now we're at this moment where the church, in failing to understand the true nature of the kingdom of Christ, thinks that somehow they can sell their soul for you know, a voting block or for some Supreme Court justices or to control the White House and Congress and things like that. And we end up, well, we end up, unfortunately, too much like Caiaphas on Good Friday saying we have no king but Caesar. Mm, yeah. That's and right. we end up willing, we are willing to sacrifice our, un, what should be our uncompromised allegiance to Christ for the sake of political power. And then sometimes it's even more nefarious than that. Sometimes it's even driven by, you know, by racism and, you know, um, make America white again seems to be lurking behind a lot of this movement. And of course, that is completely incompatible with the ethics that we receive from Christ. So I think it's a, it's a critical time. I mean, I wrote postcards from Babylon. I think I wrote it in 2017. If I, I'm, I could be off a little bit there. But I remember thinking at the time, I think, I think, I think this book is going to be irrelevant. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think this is this moment and that, and that by the time it comes out, eh, the church will have moved. Unfortunately, it's not irrelevant. Uh, I'm a little bit, I, I've never been so sad to have such a relevant book, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. And so it is a tremendous crisis for the church, not all, the, not the whole church, because we, got, we have to be careful about saying that, you know, every church in America is committed to religious nationalism because that's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are churches that are faithfully critiquing this as a form of idolatry. Yeah. Uh, and we've been really careful to uh, differentiate the white evangelicalism from the larger landscape of what uh, God's doing in the church, especially people, you know, like the historic black church. So yeah. many women of color have been the, the, the real conscience, the moral conscience uh, resisting Trump as many white evangelicals yeah, exactly. were supporting. And, you know, I think the rest of the world's kind of looking on scratching their head in some ways, but then there are, uh, you know, as you, as you look at the church, one of the tendencies is for people just to say, well, of course, like we don't need to be involved in politics. And yeah. yet that's exa exactly what they were saying to Martin Luther King too, is don't talk about 
racism from the pulpit. So um, how have you navigated that dance? Because you are pretty uh, active on things that matter, you know, abolishing the death penalty, talking about gun violence, welcoming immigrants. To me, these are not just political issues. They're a part, an extension of loving our neighbor, right? So we care about policies that affect their lives. And talk a little about how you navigate that. I I would say it like this. I have an uncompromising allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's why it's why I won't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I'll be you know, an, another, another good book would be uh, Jesus for President. That'd be a good I love, title I, I love that. <laughs> that, came out, that, that's, that's what, that came out like way back when, like two thousand what five six. I'm oh, just I don't keep keep going. What? That's a great book. Um, so. So, you know, I, I don't pledge allegiance to the United States. I'll pay my taxes. I'll be a good citizen. I'll love my neighbor. But all of my allegiance is, pre- is pledged to Christ, which means that I am not pledging any allegiance to any particular ism mm-hmm. or, or politics or social movement. I'm not claiming that this is, this is not middle of the roadism. This is not centrism. This is not quietism. This is, in fact, saying that God so loved the world that he didn't send a political party or a social movement. He sent the Logos made flesh, his son. And now that carries with it, though, profound and powerful social and political implications. But it, but it, it comes out of my allegiance to Christ. So, yes. so if people say, well, you, you, you just turned into a Democrat, BZ. I said, I'm not a Democrat and that I'm just, I'm just absolutely, I'm not, I'm not saying you can be, I'm just saying I'm not, I have no, I pledge no allegiance to elephants or donkeys. I'm committed to following the lamb, but that is, that, that is not an apolitical movement, especially when I live in a participatory, participatory democracy. And so in the name of Christ, I bear witness to the fact that we're called to care as says we'll be judged according to Matthew 25, how we treat the immigrant in the imprisoned and the indigenous and the and the infirm. These are the categories that Christ says he will judge the nations upon. And so I, I'm simply. I know that's right. The, I, we're not going to be judged on how the Dow Jones is doing, but how the least of these are doing, y'all. So uh, I, we're, we're out of time, dude. It just absolutely <laughs> flew by. We'll do this again soon. But we've been talking to Brian Zahn. Um, his newest book is uh, just hot off the press when everything's on fire. So check that out. Follow him on social media. Uh, stay in touch with us at Red Letter Christians. Thank you for listening in. I'm Shane Claiborne, and the show is Across the Pond. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about Red Letter Christians, please visit redletterchristians.org for resources, upcoming events, and to connect with other people who are passionate about Jesus and justice. You can follow Shane Claiborne and Red Letter Christians on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to support our work with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly sustainer of the movement, please visit our website and click on the red donate button. Thank you for tuning in.